all Bears fans, and the little Packer fan is all by himself on the side. Now, he feels like a stranger in a strange land. And we, we all feel that way. We've all felt like strangers. And who, who are we? You know, what is our identity? And going to a different culture that comes out, you know, who, we think about that. Who are we? How are we different? And I, I can't help thinking of the, the movie, uh, The Born Identity. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie or not, but it's about this guy who it, it starts off with him waking up wondering who is he. Um, and he, he's trying to find out who he is through, through the, the, the movie. And he, he realizes as the movie progresses on that he has these skills and abilities that he didn't realize he had. And as time passes, he realizes that he's, he's got all of these, I mean, he knows how to fight, he knows how to do all this stuff, and he, he keeps wondering, how do I know all of this stuff? Who, who really am I? And he, he begins to find out who he is and where he came from and what his purpose is as the movie goes on. You know, I think many of us are a lot like him. I mean, he had an amnesia whereby he just couldn't remember. I think many of us have a spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are as Christians. We forget where we came from. We forget the, the divine inheritance that we have in Christ. Just like Chad was talking about talking uh, just a few moments ago, he was talking about the heir to the fortune of Hugaret Clark, who had died in, in, in her hundreds just in 2011 and left multi-millions of dollars. And this guy is found frozen, dead, and homeless. If he only knew the inheritance that he had, he'd be transformed. See, I think many of us are like that. We fail to see the inheritance that God has for us, all that God has for us in Christ. We're suffering from spiritual amnesia. We forget, and we have these abilities, we have this identity as Christians that is transformative, that is absolutely wonderful. So today, we're going to look and see and read and study Peter's words to us, that we have a born-again identity. That's what we have as Christians. We have a born-again identity. We are different. That's what Peter desires that we understand. Who are we? What are we here for? And also to remember where we came from. Let's, let's look at our text. That's what I want us to see as we really jump into this text today. I want you to follow along with me as we're walking through it together. I want to not look at just verse 9. I want to jump in actually at verse 10. Peter, by the Spirit, says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. What is he saying there? He says, I want you to understand what you came from. Before you can really understand who you are now, you have to realize who you were then. So we have to be remembering our past condition. Remembering our past condition. I want you to write that down. Remembering our past condition. It's like that, that person you hear, you, you hear about this all the time with celebrities, when they get to be famous, and the people that, that they grew up uh, with, they say he forgot or she forgot where they came from. You know, we have this tendency to think we're better than we really are. We forget how bad we were spiritually before Jesus came into our lives. We forget 
how awful and rebellious and sinful and helpless and hopeless we were before we came to know Jesus Christ. We have to remember our past condition. Now, what does the text say? It says that we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were in or spiritually in darkness. Darkness is a metaphor within Scripture used to talk about rebellion, to also speak about ignorance. We were completely in spiritual darkness. I mean, it's amazing to think how dark it was for us. We have nothing without the Word of God. I mean, we, we, it's the Word of God that shines the light on our souls that shows us how bad we really are and begins to transform us. We were spiritually in darkness. We were lost. But see, Jesus came to illuminate the darkness. Matthew 4 talks about that, quoting a prophecy of Isaiah, saying they were, the people living in dark, darkness have seen a great light. And Jesus talks about it time and time again. John even records that. So often, John uses great metaphors of light and darkness. I want us to see the scripture here. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me will no longer, or no longer may not remain in darkness. In darkness. That's why Jesus came. That we don't have to be in darkness any longer. Because we were spiritually in darkness. Matter of fact, we were so bad that we were enemies of God. Did you know that? Some say, well, I, I wasn't an enemy of God. Well, the testimony of Scripture is that you and I and everyone in this room was. Matter of fact, we were part of another kingdom. We were blinded, as the Scripture says, by Satan. Unaware of how bad we really were in our heart of hearts. And matter of fact, it says that Jesus came and rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's what Colossians says. See that one right up there. Colossians 1, 1, 13 through 14 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We were in Satan's kingdom. We were trapped in a prison of our own passions. We were helpless. We were hopeless. And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved, and son, beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, we were rescued. I don't remember if you, I don't know if you played this game when you were in PE as a kid or gym class. Anybody ever play Capture the Flag? You ever play that game? Some people call it Steal the Bacon. Those are the people that grew up with Jewish backgrounds. <laughs> okay? It was called Capture the Flag. And I remember that game. And you're in the gym and you had that line that went across. And if you were trying to run and grab it, and what happened if you get tagged? You go to jail, right? And who can rescue you? person coming from your side that crosses the line and has to get to you before they get tagged. And we, we are then rescued from our own rebellion, from the, the other kingdom, as it were. See, that's what Jesus did. He crossed the line of eternity, stepped into temporality. He who is eternal spirit stepped into flesh, assumed our humanity, in order to rescue us from our sinful passions. See, we were spiritually in darkness. But that, that's not all. We were hopelessly godless. Notice, he says that you were without God. In verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. The idea there is saying that you were completely, don't, you didn't know who God was. 
Matter of fact, we have an, uh, Paul elaborates on this concept in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, where he says this. I'm going to show the verse up there on the screen, where he says, Remember that you were at one time separated from the commonwealth of Israel. What that means is, is that God had called the Jewish people through Abraham, their forefather, to be the beneficiary of salvation so that he would be a blessing unto all the nations and that he would represent and show God to those around him. And that's what his people would do. They were given all of these blessings so that they would be a light unto the world. But we, who were Gentiles, were cut off. We were completely cut off from this commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. See, God had given promises to his people, his covenant people of God. And we were strangers to it. We were foreign. We, didn't ever, we knew nothing about it at all. And we, were, had, we had no hope. Have you ever met someone who has no hope? I mean, it's sad. It really is. People that, and I've, being a pastor, I've been around people that have just got ready to commit suicide. And it's so hard to see and try to tell them there's hope. There's hope. But it says in the scripture that we were without hope. You know, there's that old bit of cliche that man can live a few weeks without food, a few days without water, but not a moment without hope. We had no hope. And we were without God. Without God. No God whatsoever in our lives. We were hopeless, hopelessly godless. That's how bad we were. Matter of fact, we didn't only not have God, we were God's enemies. As Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 explains, that we were children of wrath, followers of the prince and power of the air. That's how bad we were. I mean, we were not born good people. I remember studying in my high school English class, the debate, was man born good or born evil? And there are philosophers and, and poets and people taking all these different sides. The Bible is unequivocal that in sin my mother conceived me. Not that she had a, did a sinful act, but that we were born with sin in our lives and our hearts were bent toward evil. Not that we, we don't have and, and can do good things, but at our heart we are evil. But see, Jesus came to give us a new heart transform us, to save us from ourselves and save us from our sins and save us from the very wrath of God by paying a price that we could not pay. So we can see then that we were completely far away from God. I mean, we were, we were spiritually in darkness. We were completely and hopelessly godless. And we were also, you know what, completely clueless. Completely clueless. He says there, once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. My question is this, how did we know that we needed mercy? How did we know that? It's one of those things when we didn't realize how bad or how much we deserved of God's judgment until we really truly understand and think about what Christ did. We had no idea how bad we really were or how close we were to spiritual death. It's like uh, when I was a child, I, was, uh, I remember traveling with my mother to my grandparents' house. They lived 15 minutes from my hometown. They lived in the country. It was a hot July day. I remember us traveling in the car, my mom and I. We were driving through the 
through the fields. Uh, you see all the corn and the tassels right on top. They're just sprouting up. It's you know, getting into maturity. You see the soybeans and all of their beautiful rows as the sun just beat down upon it. We're driving along, and you can hear the, the uh, it's so hot that it's, it's uh, the road oil and the, the stones are tanking on your car as you drive through. And we had to drive past the, the crops, and we drove into this little forested area as we got ready to cross a bridge on the Kaskaskia River, and we got back to my grandparents' house. We crossed over the river, and I could see the river was just moving along so lazily as the, the trees just were meeting together, and the shadow was cast over it. It was such a peaceful day. And then we arrived at my grandparents' house. My, grandma, my grandfather came out, and he greeted my mother, and he said, how did you get here? There's many different ways to get to his house. And my mom said, well, we, we took the bridge. He said, you, you didn't. And she said, no, we did. He said, you couldn't have. She said, why? He goes, didn't you see? There were some kids that had been lighting off Roman candles on the bridge, and they had burnt a hole three feet wide in the bridge. And terrified, we went back and looked, and we realized that we drove our car right over it. They had no idea. See, we had passed by. If we would have gone down, we would have died. We just passed over death and didn't realize how close we really were. We were completely clueless just going along. See, that's how many of us were before Christ came into our life. We were completely clueless at how close to death, spiritual death, we really were. No idea. We were completely ignorant, unaware of it. But do you know that the Bible says that the time of ignorance, in Acts chapter 17, the time of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men to repent because he has fixed a day. Fixed a day. There's a day coming, and we're going to hear about that a little bit today, that day of visitation. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by all by raising him from the dead. So God, God, he said he overlooked that period of ignorance. We can no longer say that we were ignorant. We have heard the truth of God as the word of God is being proclaimed. And now we are morally responsible for how we live and conduct our lives. Each of us in this room is responsible for every single choice that we make. So we have to understand how far we came from. That we were, our past condition, I mean, we were so far gone. We were spiritually in darkness. We were, we were uh, hopelessly godless, and we were completely clueless. But that's not all Peter wants us to understand. He wants us to know that that's how you were. This is who you are now. This is what uh, God has given you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people that God has called by his own name. And he says, I want you to embrace that. I want you to embrace your present position and possession. This is what we have. We need to be embracing it. We need to be living it. What God has for us. All of the things that he has for us. We have to remember that. And, and embrace it and live up to it. And what does that mean? What do we have in Christ? Now that we are saved, what do we have? You know, the scripture gives many different descriptions for us. We can see here, first of all, that we were a holy, or we were, or we are a chosen race. 
a chosen race. It's the word eklektos, the elect of God. We have been chosen by God for a purpose, and that is to bear his name. In other words, we have a sanctified identification. We have a sanctified identification. Now we are different people. It's no longer about our name any longer. We are called by the name of God. We are called Christians. We have a sanctified identification, meaning that God himself has set us apart. God has chosen us for a task. We are a chosen now people. And what Peter is doing is he's deliberately using Old Testament language that would usually be used of Israel to show how we are now. That we're a chosen race. Not that we replace Israel in the plan of God. Romans 9 through 11 is very clear on that. But we have been grafted in to the promised plan of God. That we who are far off have been brought near. That we who are strangers to the covenant of God now become God's friend and his children. You know what, though? When you cross over and become God's friend, you now become the enemy of the world. You become the enemy of Satan. So you can't have it in both you can't have it both ways. You can't fight both armies. You can't be a spiritual Switzerland. You have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. See, now if you are in Christ, you have a sanctified identification. You're called by a different name. It's a wonderful name. You are a new creation, a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. You're, you're no longer tied to your old sinful way of life. But Christ came to defeat sin. He broke the ties of sin and gave you new life. That's an amen. We have now a sanctified identification. But there's much more involved. We are now in possession of a serious occupation. He says that we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now, the priesthood, it's language reminiscent of the Old Testament. A priest was to be, uh, you were actually born into it. You couldn't, no one could just become a priest if they wanted to. You had to be a descendant of the Levitical, the tribe of Levi. And then you were given a responsibility to minister within the temple. And you would be offering sacrifices. In other words, you would be the go-between, so often, between God and man. Now, he says that we are a royal priesthood. And now we are the go-between, between, in, in some ways, between God and man. God is imploring through us for people to be reconciled to God. We are now ambassadors in his employment. We are now these individuals who are to call to our family and friends to be reconciled to God. That's what God has for you. He's called you to be a priest. You're a royal priesthood. That's language reminiscent of the Old Testament showing there was only one royal priesthood, and that was the order of Melchizedek. He was the king and priest of God Most High in Genesis chapter 14, of whom Abraham, the great father Abraham, gave a tenth, a tithe. He tithed to him. He was an amazing priest. He's saying you're a royal priesthood now. You're, you're kings and queens. I mean, you're royalty. I mean, think about that. You're a descendant of royalty. That's pretty cool to think about, isn't it? Descendant of royalty. But it's a serious occupation that we have. And that we're to be 
talking to our family and our friends with our lives and our words and our deeds. The question is, is what do our friends and family, what do they read about us? You know that the, it's a bit cliche-ish now, but they say that we are the only Bibles that some people ever read. What do they read about God when they read you? When they read us? See, we now have a serious occupation. We are part of a royal priesthood. We are also a holy nation. A nation that's set apart. In other words, we have a sacred position. Sacred position. The word God has called us. Out of, uh, it calls all different peoples of the world. And it's the only nation in all of history that is without geographical boundary, without topographical boundary, without uh, one specific language that's called from all t- tribes and tongues and to be one people, to be a holy nation, a holy nation. And we need to behave as that holy nation. We need to understand that God has called us to be cities on a hill. Right? I think that was some of the, the language that some of the politicians used. I won't even say it might have been President Reagan that used that language in the 80s where he says that we are cities on a hill. And he was talking about that in the United States of America to be a light to the other nations. And he was adopting biblical language. But we need to recapture that language to say that we are a holy nation. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about the people of God that transcends geographical boundaries. And we are to be lights unto the world. Lights unto the world. We have a very sacred position. God has placed us up on the shelf so other people can see our lives. They can be lit by it as we're to let our light shine, right? So let me ask you, how much is your light shining? How much is your light shining? I mean, we've talked about sometimes looking at our sanctification as a dimmer switch. I think some of us are pretty dim. Almost all. God's calling you to turn it up. Be a bright light. Illuminate that around you. We have a very sacred position that God has placed us in as we are to be a holy nation. Now, he's called us for a reason. Let's look at our text here. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have a special now proclamation. Special proclamation. God has called you to speak to other people about who he is. Do you realize that? Everyone in this room, without exception, is called to witness and testify to the greatness of Jesus Christ and what he has done. We're to proclaim what he has done for us. I'm reminded of the story of Jesus and the demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Remember that story? It's a great story. Jesus comes up on the shore of the Gerasenes, and he's, he, he's coming out of the boat when this demoniac runs up to him and kneels down. I mean, this is, this is the, the man that terrified the masses in the community. And he says, are you come here to, to torment me before the time? And he commands the spirit to come out of him, and it doesn't. So Jesus says, what is your name? And finds out that there's not one demon, that there are many demons 
in this man. I mean, this is, this is one messed up guy. They said that this guy was hanging out in the cemetery. He was crying out day and night, and he was cutting himself. He couldn't even tor- take it. He was tortured, and he wanted to die. I mean, he was the, the guy that other, the parents warned their children about in the community. I, I grew up in a small town. We had this guy that would walk around our community, and he wasn't right in the head. He was very scary, even when you saw him. And when you saw him walking down the road, the parents would grab their children and bring him inside, and they'd say, you stay away from him. He was scary. As children, we were terrified of him. I can't imagine what this guy was like. I mean, he would wake people up in the middle of the night. He would cry out day and night. You know, Scott Cap is here, and uh, when we were in India, we would, we would be... Uh, sleeping at, in uh, Mission India where we were staying, and we would wake at four in the morning hearing dogs fighting, because dogs are just wandering everywhere. And you'd hear this huge dog fight in the middle of the courtyard, and it would echo, and everyone in the entire uh, place of Mission India would hear it. And it was like, I mean, two or three in the morning, it was so loud. And if you hear someone with blood-curdling screams, you're going to wake up. Can you imagine living in that community? Hearing this guy screaming day in and day out. The children waking up with nightmares, hearing the voice of this guy again and again and again. And then Jesus does something miraculous. He commands the demons to come out of him and go into the herd of pigs. And then the herd of pigs go off the edge of the cliff. And then the people of the town come and they see this guy clothed. Because remember, this guy was even naked. I mean, he had broke chains, even had supernatural strength. And then he's clothed and in his right mind, and they were fearful. I mean, you'd think they'd be happy, wouldn't you? But they were freaked out. Why? Because they realized that there was a power greater than that man in front of them. It was the power of Jesus. And then this man begs Jesus, and he says, let me go with you. Jesus says, no, go home and tell how much God has done for you. You know, that's what God does with each one of us. We're to proclaim his excellencies, his wonders, his perfections, all of his glories. And we're to proclaim and tell other people what he's done in our own lives. We're to have our personal testimony. And some of, some of us have grown up in Christian homes and we feel, hey, my testimony is that, not that dramatic. And we've talked about this a million times. I, dead to life. It doesn't matter if it was an infant or a 90-year-old man. If either one of them are dead and they come to life again, that's pretty amazing. Don't forget your testimony. You're to proclaim. You have a special proclamation. God has called you to reach your family and your friends and share the gospel with them and to live by your life and show by not just your life but your words. It's both. It's both. So we have now a special proclamation. And we need to be thankful that we've been also spared condemnation. That he says, you didn't receive mercy, now you've received mercy. See, we we needed mercy. We were getting ready to be condemned by God. And it's not that we weren't guilty. We were guilty. Every single one of us was guilty of transgressing and breaking the law of God. We've been spared condemnation. I mean, that's a wonderful thing that we don't think about any longer. But it's, it's a huge thing. We've been spared condemnation, and then we can pray and sing so joyfully. Or 
hold on. So thankfully, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I know, I know we all in this room, each one of us, struggle with sin. I know that everyone in this section struggles with sin. Every one of you. I know everyone in this section struggles with sin. And I know everyone, well, you guys don't struggle with sin. No, you all, we all struggle with sin without exception. And we, we say this in, in, in a nice way. We say, nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. But when we sin, we, we go into this period where our conscience is, eh, eh, eh. it's like those car alarms. You know, you hear going off, eh, 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 eh. and, and you've you got to respond to it. And it just keeps blaring. Our conscience keeps blaring that we need forgiveness. We need restoration. We need reconciliation. And, that's, and we feel, in some ways, God's condemnation. Because we are experiencing his alienation as our sin has broken our fellowship with God. But thankfully, Jesus Christ has provided our restoration and our reconciliation. And that comes through confession, repentance. And then we can claim that promise of Scripture. There is, therefore, no now condemnation. I remember when I was a new believer, and I would struggle with this sin in my life, and I knew what I was doing was wrong. And this verse became a bedrock for me. I would wrap my arms around it and not let go, thanking God that I'm no longer condemned because of what Jesus has done. That my salvation doesn't depend on me, but on what He already accomplished. We've been spared condemnation. I mean, we have to remember our past condition. We also, though, must realize and embrace our present possession. But it goes further. It goes further. Let's look back in our text and see what our text has for us. He says in verse 9, and I want to go back to that very beginning, that you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, urge, it's heavy emphasis, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct. conduct. With it, it, it is worded within Greek. It's, the understanding is, is that you are leaving that past life. You're to be abstaining by maintaining a good way of life. Keep your conduct honorable. That's the idea that's being presented there. And that means that we need to be pursuing life transformation. We have this new identity in Christ. What are we going to do with it? We have all these new things that God has given us. We have to be, a good, be a good stewards of everything God has entrusted to our care. Each one of us in this room is to be pursuing life transformation. That new life that we have in Christ. We've been given a new life. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Are we going to waste it? Or are we going to, to pursue God and lose ourselves in the knowledge of Him? Now, pursuing life transformation involves three different things. And we're looking at a very broad concept. 
First of all, we need to be understanding and appropriating Christ's crucifixion. Christ's crucifixion. See, this is the taking up your cross daily. This is Luke 9, 37, and Jesus says, If anyone wishes to follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. It's the daily dying to self. See, we have to understand and appropriate Jesus Christ's crucifixion as our own, as Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 makes so clear. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, his crucifixion becomes our crucifixion. We have to understand that by taking up our cross daily, we're dying to our sin and self. See, we can't have true life transformation until we've received Christ. Because once we receive Christ, we repent of our sins and embrace him. God gives us his spirit, and that is the very power that was at work within him that helped him or raised him from the dead. That shows that we take his death as our death, meaning that he died to sin and the power of sin. And then we can die to the power of sin in our lives. We appropriate his death as our own. And we understand that we don't have to go after the things of this world any longer. That we've been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me, as Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 says very, very clearly. The world has been crucified to me. This is the cross-centered life. This is taking up your cross. And it's a daily thing. We have to die to ourselves every day because our sinful nature keeps trying to erupt. And it's fighting back. That new heart we've received. That old flesh is trying to reject that new heart. And we keep putting that old flesh at bay by feeding it, feeding the new heart that we've received. So we have to appropriate his crucifixion, but we also have to appropriate his resurrection. So we don't talk enough about the resurrection. Martin Luther said that the resurrection was the hinge upon which the door of Christianity turned. We see that it was a core component of the early church's proclamation of the gospel. We see Paul speaking to the intellectual intelligentsia in Acts chapter 17 as he is at the Areopagus, Areopagus excuse me, in Athens. He's debating the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. These are the who's who of the day. This is the Boston, MIT, Harvard, all that in Athens. And they're debating him, and he talks about who God is. And then he gets to one key component, and this is where they laugh him out of the building. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without the resurrection, we've got nothing. We talk a great deal about crucifixion, but it's the resurrection that was God's exclamation point. And it's the resurrection life that Jesus has that he gives to us. That we, by faith in him, after receiving him as Lord and Savior, we become grafted in, we become grabbed onto that vine. We are the branches that holds on to him, that we have his life becomes ours. And the spirit that raised him from the dead comes into us, appropriates his crucifixion as our own. And then we, by faith, continually appropriate his resurrection as our own, as Romans chapter 6 makes abundantly clear. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 through 11. 
This is a great passage. The scripture says, we were therefore, or we were buried therefore with him by baptism, or baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, we have new life. We need to walk in that new life. We need to to grasp on and pursue that new life that we have. We have to live according to that new life. As that, that chosen race, that royal priesthood, and that holy nation, we are more than conquerors through him who called us and died for us. I mean, we are divine heirs with Christ. That's pretty phenomenal. And we see there that for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be, or she shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, that old nature, that unredeemed nature, that fallen flesh in which no good dwells, that fallen nature with that, that black and dead heart out of which comes all kinds of vile different things. It's that old man, that old nature. We know that that old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, who is the Son? And he does what? He sets us free. He died our death. He became our substitute. He took the wrath we deserved upon himself. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. He continues on. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never, ever die again. Never die again. Ever. Never. Ever. Never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Why? Because he beat death. This isn't some... Hindu version of karma where you're continually stuck in this cycle until you get out of it by building up enough karma or merit to get out and escape it. No. We know that all men, all women, every single person is destined to die once and then face judgment. Why? Because we have sin. But see, God made him who knew no sin. And that he took our nature, our our humanity upon himself without sin, identified with us, appropriated his, I mean, died in our place, and we appropriate by faith through his spirit, his death as our death, and his resurrection as our resurrection. As Paul continues on, the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're dead to it. We don't have to do it any longer. We consider ourselves dead to sin. How do we do that? By faith and taking up our cross. And taking his crucifixion as our own and taking his resurrection as our own. That's what we have to do. Peter continues on. Let's look back at our text. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, meaning that you're strangers to this world because you are now have a heavenly home, a heavenly kingdom. Remember, you've been rescued from that domain of darkness. You're to abstain from the passions of the flesh 
And we see the passions of the flesh being explained in Galatians chapter 6 and 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, or Mark chapter 7. We see all of these different passions of the flesh that come out from our sinfulness. They wage war against us. They're like the boiling pot that's trying to pull that, you know, just blow that lid off. They want out. And we have to kill them. And we kill them by appropriating Jesus' death as our own. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to, exiles to ex- abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles, what the, that's the expression that especially used of Jews for those who are non-Jews, those who are outside of the, pro- the promises of God. We are now called the Israel of God, according to Galatians chapter 6. That not that we are replacing Israel, we're not. As we've said before, we've been grafted in and we are now known as spiritual Israel. So we've been grafted into this promised plan of God, and Peter is adopting precise language to talk about those outside of the believing community that would have been familiar to a Jewish audience. So he's saying that keep your conduct among basically unbelievers so that, and he goes on to say, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation visitation. So what is he talking about there? What is this day of visitation? See, it's referring to the future and final judgment, by which time Peter hopes that unbelievers who have observed the good works of the Christians they have slandered will come to faith in Christ. See, the future justification or visitation of God in Christ will be a day for blessing for God's holy nation, his people. It will be a day of blessing then. It will also be a day of judgment and condemnation for the nations, for all of those who neglected the very gospel of God, and they are not God's people. See, the witness of a sustained, maintained life of those who are taking up their cross daily will be seen, and all of those who live that life will be vindicated in the sight of all men and women. See, those who reject the gospel, Those who leave it behind will be condemned by their own harsh judgment of Christians who refuse to indulge the values and practices of an ungodly society. That's what's going on. What does that mean? It means it will be a day of blessing, and it will be a day that is completely terrifying. And it will be a day, though, when there are those who saw your life and actually turned away uh, or or looked at your life, and they slandered you, but they will give praise to God. Hopefully they will have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through your life. And you will be vindicated for the life that you led. In other words, it's it's this. We look forward as Christians. I mean, we're to be pursuing life transformation, but we also look forward to the day of God's consummation when we'll be vindicated. When we receive that vindication, when he comes again, and there will be blessing, and it will be also be terrifying. It will be a great day in that we will, we will see him as he is, and we shall be like him. We will see him face to face. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Then we will enter into our full identity as God's people. We'll have that, we'll have that identity. Where we'll, we won't have to be worried about it any longer. We will have it completely and fully forever in the sight of God and what he has for us. But until that day, we're strangers. We're aliens in this world. 
We just must make sure that we're trying to get rid of the spiritual amnesia that we have. We must enter into all that God has for us in Christ. But it must first come by faith. By faith in Him. As we submit our lives daily to Him. As we humble ourselves and we try to serve Him. Serve Him. You know, there's many opportunities that we have here to serve the Lord. I know that if you are called by the name of Jesus Christ, God has a, a task for you. That He has given you a gift, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, that each one of us has a gift from the Spirit of God that is to be used in service to God. Are you serving the Lord? Are you entering into that identity? Part of that identity is learning how to serve. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we too are to be serving one another. Are you serving? We have uh, uh, several opportunities for you to serve the body of Christ, to serve one another. There's a little insert within your bulletin, ministry opportunities. Take that out and look it over. These are just some of the ways that we can serve one another. You can even take this little test. It's called our place test. And it's finding your giftedness, how God has uniquely constructed or made you to serve him. You have gifts that I don't have. You have have gifts that are valuable to the body of Christ, that without it, we all suffer. We're to be using our gifts to be serving one another. You can go online and take a place test, and we have place counselors. Some are even training right now at our own campus that will meet with you and talk about how you are uniquely gifted and in areas in which you could serve. You say, well, I don't know where to serve. We can help with that. We want you to serve, serving one another. We have several different means. And God has blessed us, but he's not blessed us to sit on our blessed assurance. He's gifted us to be of service to the master's hand. Amen? We're to enter into that born-again identity. Continue to be strangers and exiles to this world. Not giving in to the passions of our fallen nature, but pursuing that new life that we have in Christ Jesus as we appropriate his crucifixion and resurrection as our own. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you that you've given us a new identity. We have this born-again identity. And Lord, we know that this born-again identity (laughs) makes us to be strangers to this fallen world. And Lord, we know that even our old flesh is at war against this new heart that you have given us. Lord, help us to put to death the misdeeds of our sinful nature, considering ourselves dead to sin as we take up our cross each and every day. And help us to walk in this new life, knowing that we are new creatures. We are new creation. We are a new people that we are this holy nation, this chosen race, this royal priesthood, that we were now, we were, no, we were once no people, but now we are your people. We, we never had received mercy, but now we receive mercy. Lord, let us be faithful stewards and live our life in light of that new relationship that we have in you. Lord, glorify yourself in our midst. I pray that if there's someone here today who doesn't have yet that born-again identity, I pray that you might convict them of their, uh, by your spirit of their sin. They might see their sin and their need of a Savior, that they might repent and embrace you, the Savior of the world, for forgiveness of sins. And Lord, that they might be also brought near for purpose and use in your Master's hand. 
Lord, please help us to realize everything that you have for us to be and do. And Lord, glorify your name in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.